Welcome to another episode of RT Plus and to what is the first in our mini-series titled Evolution and Divergence, Markets in the EU and UK. In this series, we explore different aspects of the markets regime and possible changes that may come in the pipeline, with a view to assessing what these might mean in terms of potentially potential regulatory divergence between the EU and the UK. Over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at different topics within the markets regime that spans the EU and UK, including market data, equities trading, trading venues, systematic internalizers, and bonds and derivatives. But we begin the mini-series today with a discussion about commodity derivatives. And to that end, I'm joined by Hannah Meakin, who is partner in the financial services practice in London, and also Anna Carrier, who is senior government and regulatory affairs advisor in our government relations practice in Brussels. So hello to both Hannah and Anna. Now, before we sort of dive into uh, the substantive uh, elements uh, of today's podcast, I just want to um, uh, have a quick uh, make a quick point about about timing. So, Anna, is it possible to just understand, like, roughly, sort of, in terms of timing, the sort of changes that we're going to talk about today? You know, how long uh, will it will it take for those to happen, and sort of what stage is the EU at? Sure. So, in the EU, um, it is important to um, stress that we are already dealing with the adopted changes. So, we're dealing with adopted law and the changes to MIFID regime that were published in the official journal. And member states have until the 28th of November this year to transpose the provisions of the MIFID quick fix to their national legal frameworks. And also, ESMA and the Commission have to develop some secondary legislation, uh, more or less by the same deadline. Um, and then the new regime is, is supposed to become applicable on the 28th of February next year. So 28th of February 2022, when the regime, uh, when, when the changes will become um, effective. Um, that said, my understanding is that the UK um, uh, regime changes are somehow uh, in, in, in earlier stages. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So the, the UK proposals that we're going to talk about today are really just that. They are proposals um, by HM Treasury uh, as set out in its wholesale markets review. Um, so we don't have any uh, drafting suggestions at the moment. So um, so we don't know exactly what these proposals are going to look like when they, they go into legislation. Um, and we also don't know exactly what the timings are going to be. Um, but uh, given that the, the devil is always in the detail and there's always room for change, um, I think it's quite important just to bear that in mind in, in terms of what we talk about today. Definitely. Very, very important in clarification indeed. So the first topic that we're going to look at today is actually the scope uh, of the commodity derivative regime. And uh, I understand that the UK has proposed some changes uh, uh, to the scope of this. So Hannah, is that is that correct? That is correct, uh, particularly in relation to which uh, commodity derivatives actually count as commodity derivatives in the first place. Um, so the key proposal is to remove derivatives that are not actually based on physical commodities. Um, so, for example, exotic derivatives such as those that are based on climatic variables or the weather. Um, at the moment, they are treated as commodity derivatives, but the uh, intention is to change that. There are also a couple of other proposals. So. First of all, to remove financial instruments, which refer to commodities as a pricing element, but are actually securities in their legal form. Um, so to cease to treat those as commodity derivatives. And then to also remove the automatic inclusion of economically equivalent OTC commodity derivatives from scope. However, on that particular point, the intention would still be that the FCA and trading venues would take account of those contracts when monitoring the markets. So I think the reasons for all of those changes are slightly different, 
but they are together intended to make the regime a bit more focused on commodities for which the obligations have actually been designed and which it is actually possible to sensibly comply with the obligations. Sure. Um, thanks for that, Anna. And uh, Anna, how about in Europe? Are they, is there an intention to make similar changes? So, no, the, the intention is not to um, uh, change the regime as far reaching as, as in the UK. So, for example, there are no changes to the definition of commodity derivatives being considered. Um, that said, in the recent amendments to the MIFID commodity derivatives regime, which by means of background um, were introduced in response to the COVID-19 outbreak as part of the wider capital markets recovery package, the co-legislators agreed to remove securitized derivatives from the scope of position limits and position reporting regimes. So in technical terms, this includes transferable securities, which relate to a commodity or an underlying as referred to section C10 of Annex 1 of 2, um, section C10 um, being so-called exotic derivatives cash settled with underlying such as climatic variables, freight rates or inflation rates. And in terms of other changes contemplated in the UK that Hannah has just mentioned, such as removal of the derivatives that are not based on physical commodities from the scope of the regime or removal of the automatic inclusion of economically equivalent OTC commodity derivatives. Um, as far as we know at this stage, um, and as I mentioned, the quick fix changes didn't go that far. That said, there's a bigger and broader review of the MIFID II and its sister regulation, MIFIR, upcoming later this year. And while the commodity derivatives regime will not be the focus of this review, given these recently adopted changes, and, and without speculating, uh, we can still consider um, potential for some further tweaks um, uh, being, being done in, in the context of this broader review. I see. Thank you uh, for that, Anna. So uh, I think we're seeing like a small potential here for, uh, for some divergence. And so if there are different differences that begin to emerge between the, the in scope of the UK uh, and EU regimes, what will that mean uh, for market participants? So Anna, perhaps we can start with you first. Sure. So, so I think that from the commodity markets participants perspective and mindful that many of such participants are active in those markets globally, the upcoming divergence may add to the complexity of their compliance obligations as the internal policies and um, systems and position monitoring um, uh, procedures will have to be adjusted to account separately for two different regimes instead of a single one. And on the other hand, if the EU will end up with a broader scope of commodity derivatives regime, and judging from the changes contemplated um, in the UK, this might be the case. Um, from an EU market participant perspective, it raises an issue of a potential competitive advantage of the UK commodity markets over the EU ones over the longer time perspective. Um, Hannah, would you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that, that point about competitive advantage is interesting, but actually there are potentially merits in both approaches because quite often commodity market participants are entering into both commodity derivatives, but also exotic derivatives kind of at the same time in relation to the same type of business. Um, if you take, for example, the freight uh, derivatives, that's, you know, that's quite a good example. And so having a slightly different regime that, uh, or having a regime that deals with those two types of derivatives in slightly different ways may or may not make the lives of those trying to deal with the regime you know, less complicated, even, even though I think that is the intention. I think the other thing that's really going to be really important in the UK regime is making sure that where, for example, exotic derivatives are still within scope of the regime, there is actually an exclusion that will still apply to them. 
and whether that exclusion will work in a similar way to the exclusions for commodity derivatives or whether it will be um, calibrated on a different basis will be interesting to see. I see. No, that's that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, if we move on to the next topic now, and we're going to look at the ancillary activity test. Now, uh, this is probably one of the most uh, important parts uh, of the present regime and that it determines uh, which market participants actually need to be authorised uh, in the first place. So, um, and I understand that there's actually uh, changes proposed on both sides of the channel here. So, uh, Hannah, perhaps we can start with you uh, and, uh, and what the UK is planning on this. Yeah, so the, the MIFID 2 test or our current UK test is based on both qualitative and quantitative criteria to determine whether a company's trading business is ancillary to its main non-financial services business. And when you're making that assessment, you can discount derivatives that have been entered into essentially for hedging purposes. And so this has meant that in practice, um, According to the FCA, according to HM Treasury, no UK firms have actually exceeded that threshold of speculative activity. Um, yet all commodity derivative uh, market participants have had to put a lot of uh, work into trying to um, do those calculations, gathering the data in order to be able to do them and keeping them updated on, on an ongoing basis. And so what the government is proposing is to uh, for the UK to revert to a principles-based regime that looks at business much more holistically and really focuses only on the qualitative criteria. Um, so this, this would be intended to achieve the same outcome as the, the current regime, but essentially with less effort on the part of market participants and uh, I think also the regulators. Um, in addition to that, the, the test would not just be backward looking, but would also be forward looking. So thinking about what the um, market participants business is going to look like in the future. Um, and the, the proposal is to drop the annual notification, but that the FCA would still be able to request evidence um, as to how a firm has come to its conclusion if, uh, if needed. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Hannah. Um Anna, if we turn to you now, how does this compare with uh, what's happening in the EU? So, yes, um, there, there were also changes um, introduced uh, to the ancillary activity test in the EU. And in, in, interestingly, in its July 2020 proposal uh, for the Method Quick Fix, the Commission proposed to simplify the current ancillary activity test by deleting all quantitative elements and reverting to a solely qualitative approach. However, um, in the light of the opposition of certain member states, the final text um, of the of the Method Quick Fix provides for a mandate for the Commission to adapt, uh, adopt the Delegated Act that would set out the criteria determining when an activity is to be considered to be ancillary to the main business at the group level. And there are certain um, considerations that the, and the criteria that the Commission will have to um, take into the account and the test will have to reflect. Uh, for example, whether the net outstanding notional exposure in commodity derivatives or emission allowances or their derivatives um, for financial settlements traded in the EU, excluding such instruments traded on the trading venue, is below an annual threshold of um, 3 billion euros, and whether the capital employed by the group to which the person belongs is predominantly allocated to the main business of that group, or whether the size of those activities does not exceed the total size of the other trading activities at the group level. So this um, work is well underway, and on the 14th of July, the Commission 
adopted and published its delegated act. It's still pending the formal adoption and publication in the official journal, but nonetheless, the actual provisions um, are already there. So from, from that, we know uh, what the changes to the test are, and the main changes in comparison to the current test include a deletion of the overall market size test and an introduction of a new, the minimum threshold test. So the other two tests as established in what is commonly known as RTS 21, and so the trading test and the capital employed test will remain unchanged. So according to the revised rules, activities of the person will be considered to be ancillary at the group level when they comply with any of the following conditions. So the net outstanding um, notional exposure in commodity derivatives for cash settlement or emission allowances or derivatives of emission allowances for cash settlement traded in the union, excluding commodity derivatives and such instruments um, traded on a trading venue is below an annual threshold of the trillion. So this, the, the minimum threshold test, that's a new thing. The size of trading activities undertaken in the union accounts for 50% or less of the total size of the other trading activities of the group. And the estimated capital employed accounts for not more than 50% of the capital employed at the group level for carrying out the main business. So there are further technical details obviously included in, the, in this new um, uh, secondary legislation as just recently published by the commission and um, including procedures for calculations, but obviously we don't have um, the time to, to discuss this all today. And just one final thing that I would like to mention in the context of ancillary activity is that the Commission will have to review by the end of this year the impact of the ancillary activity exemption in relation to emission allowances and their derivatives and to propose, if appropriate, a legislative proposal to amend that part of the exemption. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Anna. Uh, now, um, Hannah, you know, again, there looks like there's sort of scope uh, for sort of differences to start to emerge here, in particular sort of differences in approach, really, between what's happening in the EU and the UK. Uh, what would you say that means for market participants? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point because I can see that the um, qualitative only approach that the UK is proposing will be very attractive to uh, many market participants who have really, you know, not enjoyed having to do those calculations. But actually, when you only have qualitative criteria, that, that does usually imply that quite a lot of judgment needs to be made. And actually, if there are still quantitative criteria in the European regime, which, as Anna has just described, there, there essentially will be, then um, I do wonder whether many market participants will essentially look to the, uh, the European calculations when undertaking their assessment for UK purposes as well. Um, given that many of them are going to have to do both of those assessments in any event. So thank you for that. Um, Anna, you mentioned briefly uh, about, about some of the sort of timing involved in, in, in these changes. I wonder if you could just elaborate. Here, um, member states have until 28th of November this year to transpose the provisions of the Mifid Quick Fix to their national legal frameworks. And the new regime is uh, supposed to become applicable on the 28th of February, 2022. So it's upcoming um, very, very shortly. That's great. Thank you so much uh, for that, Anna. Now, if we move on to the final uh, topic that we're going to cover uh, in today's podcast, and that is uh, position limits. Um, and this was arguably one of the most sort of discussed uh, aspects of MIFID to uh, both before and during its implementation. And 
Um, again, it sounds like uh, both the EU and the UK regulators had a bit of a rethink uh, on this and how successful uh, these uh, measures have been. Um, Hannah, if we start with you, what are the UK proposals uh, at the moment on? Yeah, so at the moment, the FCA sets position limits for all exchange-traded commodity derivative contracts. And the proposal is to change this so that the exchanges actually take responsibility for possess- for setting position limits um, going forward. Uh, but they would do that under a framework that has been set um, by, I think, by the FCA, um, which would really determine what the broad objectives that the trading venues should be achieving are um, when they are looking to set the position limits. And it looks like the intention is that exchanges would be required to set minimum limits for certain contracts. Um, and that would include those that are physically settled or where the underlying commodity is an agricultural product. The other part of the proposal is that the FCA would retain the ability to intervene in the event of market volatility. And the suggestion is that they would continue to receive commodity derivative reports in order to be able to monitor for that potential volatility. So it's a potentially quite quite sort of big decentralisation uh, there. Um, Anna, is, this, is, it, is there a similar thing happening in Europe? Is this more radical than what's happening in Europe or how would you compare it? Yeah, so I mean, there, there are changes happening in Europe as well, um, perhaps slightly less radical. Um, in, the, in the EU, the legislators agreed to limit the application of the position limits regime to critical or significant contracts, with the exception of agricultural products and in particular products used for human consumption. For such a contract, limits would continue to be set by national competent authorities of member states based on the methodology developed by ESMA. So again, centrally, centrally set and not um, uh, venue-led for, for those uh, critical significant contracts and, and agricultural products. And commodity derivatives will be considered as critical or significant where the sum of all net positions of end position holders constitutes the size of their open interest and is at, at a minimum of 300,000 lots on average over one year. And this list is yet to be developed by ESMA together with the calculation methodology that competent authorities are to apply when establishing the spot month position limits and other months position limits for physically settled and cash settled commodity derivatives based on the characteristics of the relevant and derivative concerned. So albeit less far reaching than the envisaged UK reform, that Hannah has just described. The amendments to the European position limit regime are still quite substantive, given the starting position, which was an extremely broad regime that captured effectively all commodity derivative contracts. And um, we've discussed time timelines before, and um, but, but there's one thing I would, I would just like to mention in, in, in the context here, is that um, that in the anticipation of the upcoming position limits regime change, so in February 2022, ESMA issued a public statement um, on its supervisory approach to position limits, so noting that the new regime will, will become applicable next year and reminding market participants that it cannot disapply EU law, ESMA nonetheless called on national competent authorities not to prioritize their supervisory actions towards um, entities holding positions in commodity derivatives other than agricultural commodity derivatives or those with net open interest below 300,000 lots. So, um, and, and also those um, 
not not to prioritize their supervisory actions toward positions that are objectively measurable as resulting from transactions entered to fulfill obligations to provide liquidity on trading venues. So this is just a long way of saying that um, uh, while the law hasn't um, changed yet, technically, um, the, the supervisory practices of, um, of national competent authorities uh, would tend to already reflect this, this, this regime change. So Anna, just to pick up on one thing uh, that you mentioned there. So you mentioned uh, that uh, the uh, you mentioned the hedging exemption uh, on position limits, and uh, I understand that there's some uh, changes in the pipeline there as well. Could you perhaps explain a little bit about what those might be? Sure, of course. So in the EU, the um, co-legislators agreed to extend the hedging exemption beyond the currently applicable one for positions held by or on behalf of a non-financial entity, and which are objectively measurable as reducing risks directly relating to the commercial activity of that non-financial entity to certain positions held um, by or on behalf of a financial entity. So that's um, that's a big change. And this hedging exemption will be available only to a financial entity that is part of a predominantly commercial group and is acting on behalf of a non-financial entity in such a group and which holds positions that are objectively measurable as reducing risks directly relating to the commercial activity of that non-financial entity. So there are some conditions there. Um, in, in addition, benefiting from the hedging exemption will also be positions held by both financial and non-financial counterparties that are resulting from transactions entered into to fulfill obligations to provide liquidity on the trading venue. And further details on the operation of the amended hedging exemption, including the relevant procedures applicable to financial entities and those providing liquidity on trading venues, are to be developed by ESMA and by the Commission by means of regulatory technical standard. So this work is currently well underway um, with the consultation of the draft ESMA RTS that closed um, on the 23rd of July, but we're yet to see the final text. I see. Thank you for that. Hannah? Uh, how about in the UK? Are any changes proposed uh, in respect of the hedging exemption there? Yes, I mean, it sounds like the UK is intending to do something somewhat similar. Um, so the FCA had already announced that they would not take action for breaches of position limits where the breach arose from a position that was held by a liquidity provider to fulfil its obligations uh, to provide liquidity on a trading venue. Um, but the uh, the the wholesale markets review is also proposing then to to formalise that supervisory approach uh, to extend the exemptions, the, 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 the position limit exemption to all liquidity providers. I think the exact scope, um, we'll have to wait and see exactly what that looks like. Um, but it sounds like it could be quite widely drafted to enable regulated firms to facilitate hedging, hedging activity for commercial entities. Uh, even in situations where the risk being hedged arises off exchange or on a different trading venue. Um, and again, I think this is, you know, this is something that we've we've certainly heard both regulated and unregulated market participants asking for a, a change along these lines. So I think it will be well received. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you to Anna as well. Um, we hope you've enjoyed the first in this mini series about the divergences in the markets regime between the EU and the UK. Um, please be sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to ensure that you don't miss subsequent episodes in this series and indeed other Regulation Tomorrow or RT Plus podcasts that will be released in the coming weeks. Uh, we thank you for listening and we hope to catch you again. Thank you.